Have you ever played the game Two Truths and a Lie? You ever play that game? It's like a party game. It's like an icebreaker game. The idea is like everybody takes like an index card or something, and they write down three facts about themselves. Two of them are true. One of them is not true. And I've played this in a lot of settings, and it can be a whole lot of fun. I've played it with adults. I've mostly played it with students, like uh, middle school, high school students. It's a great game just to kind of get a new group of kids to figure out you know, each other's stuff. And, and two truths and a lie. Now, here's the thing. It's disturbing. The, the more times I've played, the more disturbed I've been. And I'm not sure what disturbs me the most. Uh, on the one hand, especially with our youth, is... How many of them are terrible at this game? They're really bad at it. And so, like, I know. It's like, well, they're not good at lying. I know, I know. But does it also mean they're not very creative and they can't think outside the box? I don't know. I don't know if that's more scary or if it's scary that some of them are really good at it. And you're like, oh, man, you're probably like a, like a, you're a killer. You're probably, you probably kill people. And we don't know. And we don't know. Uh, and so, like, I've played in a lot of settings and I've gotten that feel. Uh, the trick of the game is to, like, you got to make the truths kind of seem like they might not be true. Maybe. And you got to make the lie seem like it could definitely be true. That's how you win. Which leads me to a third disturbing thing I've just been chewing on, and that's this. I happen to be really good at the game. So I don't know what that says about me. Either I'm good at thinking out of the box, or I'm a cold face killer. I'm not sure which one it is. Actually, I know that I haven't ever killed anybody. That's, I want to go on record as saying that. I just want to say it out loud. And then we're on Facebook. We're talking about truths and, and lies this month in this series, Live No Lies. And I'm starting with that story because it turns out the strategy that the devil uses against us is very similar to that game. And the strategy that we use to interact with a lot of people as we present ourselves to the world is often very similar to that game. We're in this series called Live No Lies, and it's based on a book by a sim- the same name, Live No Lies, a guy named John Mark Comer. Uh, we've studied another one of the books he wrote. Uh, I believe that the, the only book we should study in church is the Bible, but some people like this have written, but this is like a philosophy book and breaking into some good church history and understanding he's unpacked some things. So uh, I would encourage you to go grab this book on Amazon or at a bookstore. It's a really good read, and it'll be one to help you kind of understand this thing. This whole premise, and we kind of talked about it last week, the, the, the buzzword last week was the struggle is real. Like, the world is tough, and we talked about how that all comes from spiritual warfare. We're at a battle for our very souls. And so the key to that, like his premise and the thing that I think we want to do is we want to live no lies. Lies are one of the greatest tools of the evil one in the world. John, uh, John chapter 8, verse 32, Jesus says this. He says, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And this is a phrase that people have been saying a long time, and many people don't even know that it. Jesus was the one who said it first. We touched on this some last week, but in his book, John Mark Comer points out that there are three enemies to our soul. And this is kind of ancient wisdom. Ancient wisdom. Early, early Christians started to identify these three things, almost like an unholy trinity of things that drag us down. He said that they are the devil, the flesh, and the world. The devil, the flesh, and the world. And, and to kind of expound on that, what he was saying is the devil uses deceptive ideas that play to disordered desires, which is our flesh, that are normalized in a sinful society, the world. So we have these disordered, deceptive desires in our minds. But our body, like, we kind of like it. We kind of like, like, like the brokenness of it. And there's a world around us that accepts it and normalizes it. Yeah, that's fine. That's fine. Do you, right? So the devil, the flesh, and the world. Today we're going to just really unpack the first one, the devil. What does that mean? <laughs> Who is that? 
Do we believe in the devil? What's going on? And to get there, we're going to look back at John chapter 8, which is the verse that we just looked at. The truth will set you free. Jesus is in this discourse talking with some people, and I want you to see it. This is in John chapter 8, so if you've got a Bible, go ahead and open it up. We try to be a church where people bring a paper Bible with you or look it up on an app on the phone. We also have free Bibles in the lobby that we give away. We actually just bought some new Bibles because we've been giving away so many Bibles. That's pretty cool. So step over there and grab a Bible if you need one on your way out or shoot in the middle of the service if you're like, I just want a Bible. Go get one. Uh, you can borrow it for church on Sundays and put it back, or you can take it home, put your name in it. We want everybody to have a good readable Bible. In this passage, in John chapter 8, which is one of the biographies of the life of Jesus, Jesus is having this lively debate with some believers, some followers. And it's interesting, normally when you see him in these discourses, he's with people who disagree with him. There's often these people who are like, they call them the religious leaders, the Pharisees are a big group of them. And, and they're, they're like button heads, but here it says it's a group of believers and Jesus has just said this phrase, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And you've heard that phrase before and you're like, yeah, that makes sense. The truth sets you free. These guys are confused the first time they hear it. They go, set us free. They weren't concerned about the truth part. They were concerned about the slavery part. And they're like, set us free. Pfft. Hey, look, let me tell you something. We are slaves to no one, okay? We need no freedom from anything because we are slaves to no one because we are children of God and we are children of Abraham. And they had a history of slavery and they were free from that. So don't call us slaves. And Jesus is like, mm, actually, you might be wrong. Because actually, if you were a, a, fa- a child of the father and a child of Abraham, you wouldn't be a slave to this thing called sin. And it's bogging you down. And you have a different father than you think you have. That's kind of the setup to where we pick up in John chapter 8, verse 42. Let's take a look at that. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I have come here from God. I have not come on my own. God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil. You want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. Do not hold to, not holding to the truth. For there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language. For he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because... I tell the truth, you do not believe in me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I'm telling the truth, why don't you believe me? Whoever belongs to God hears what God says. And the reason that you do not hear is because you do not belong to God. These are people who have just made the claim, we're children of Abraham, we're children of God. What I want to do is Talk about our main character, the devil, today. I don't preach on the devil very often. And I think sometimes, like, I don't, ever, I don't know if I've ever preached a sermon on the devil. I think in our modern society, we think about, like, the devil as that little red cartoon character, you know, and he's, like, got the pitchfork and the tail and all this thing. And we're kind of like, yeah, that's superstitious and old-fashioned. People don't really believe in the devil. Like, that's just... But there's some things that we draw out of John chapter 8 here that I think should cause us to pause and rethink this whole thing. So what I want to do is unpack some big ideas that Jesus just said. And the first one is this. Apparently, Jesus believes the devil is real. The devil is real. Why do we think that? Well, he's talking about him here. And there's also encounters that Jesus has with the devil. For example, in Luke chapter 4, I'm going to touch on that briefly in a minute. But the devil is real. That's our first big idea. But what is he? What is the devil? Well, for starters, in the Bible, he doesn't get a proper name. His name isn't the devil. That's not his name. It's actually more of a title. The word devil is actually more of a title that means like accuser. 
He's the accuser. We also have this other name you might use for him, Satan. You've heard this, surely. Right? Satan is just a word that means the adversary. And all throughout Scripture, we get all these like pepperings of names and titles for this individual. The tempter, the destroyer, the deceiver, the great dragon who deceives the world. The ancient serpent who leads the whole world astray. So the fact that he doesn't get a proper name might seem like a slight. Like, yeah, stick it to him. But we're not even going to say his name. I think it actually says more than that. Uh, I think it actually speaks to his power. You know, this is also true about God. Like, God's name isn't like George, the God. He didn't have like a, a proper name. All the names we have for God are, are more or less titles. Some of the titles just are the word God, <laughs> like in various languages and forms. And so, like, I think in a similar way, the, the devil is a being that has enough power that like one single name doesn't kind of define him. And so throughout Scripture, People have called him different things to kind of say what he does and what he's all about. But beyond that, there's a little bit more to know. Like, there's not a chapter in the Bible that you're like, oh, the Wikipedia page, or like, who is the devil? And it gives you, like, a bulleted list of all of this. There's not, like, that moment in the Bible. But the Bible is often seen kind of like a, a mosaic of details. And so all throughout Scripture, we get these little sprinklings and notes and notions of different things. And so when it comes to this being, the tempter, the adversary, the devil, Satan. We get these moments. And so if you take all the mosaic pieces and put them together, you do get a, a picture of maybe who this individual is. And so let's just look at a couple of the things we learned from Scripture about the devil. The first thing we know about him is this. The devil is a created being. God is the creator. And sometimes we get the notion, the idea that the devil is some like, like maybe the, the yin to God's yang. He's like the bad guy and God's the good guy. And they're kind of like constantly fighting it out. <laughs> but that isn't the picture we see in scripture what we see is that the devil is a, a creative being therefore subservient to the creator like it's not even close the pecking order between the power of god and the power of satan is unreal like there's a big difference he is always subservient yet god allows him to have some some latitude when we look and see a couple other things we also see that his like original role seems to have been in some sort of for spiritual formation process for mankind. Uh, the, the book of Job is where we get this idea. And there's this moment where that God and Satan are just talking, and he's like, hey, let me consider our servant Job. Uh, can, we, can we just push him around a little bit and see how he takes it? And God's like, yeah, yeah, let's, let's do that. And so God gives him that latitude and lets him like mess around with Job. That doesn't seem like a cool thing for God to do, but uh, I guess shut my mouth because it's not my job to be God. So he allows it, right? So that seemed to have been like a role that Satan had at some point. He also seemed to serve on some sort of uh, council. Uh, we, we get this picture of the Elohim, and like when you look in the Old Testament, the very first lines of the Bible is like, God said, let us create man in our likeness, in our image. And some people interpret that to mean that God is speaking within himself. He's so big and mighty and the Holy Spirit and the Trinity and all that. Maybe that's it. Others, and this is not new, this has been around for you know, millennia, that there was a council of angelic beings that God allowed to oversee certain things. And so maybe that, and there's a notion that maybe the devil was a part of that at some point. But at some point, he rebelled. And this is kind of the big thing that we understand about him in sort of our modern understanding. That he, he rebelled against that counsel, against God. He wanted the authority. He wanted the power. He wanted the final word. And so he, he recruits other spiritual powers with him. And, and that's kind of maybe what we call demons today. You hanging with me? Like, this is deep stuff. 
I'm not an expert on this. I've read a ton of it. There's a lot of people who dabble into it. C.S. Lewis says that if you have an unhealthy interest in demonic forces, that's not good. And so, but it is nice to kind of understand a little bit about what we're dealing with. And so for millennia, the devil has been called the prince of this earth. It's in a conversation with him and Jesus that was used. Because he did have some latitude. He did have some reign, if you will, to go around. Now, there's some things about the devil and God that are very distinct. One of them is he's not all-powerful, and he's not omnipresent. Like, it seems that he's stuck to a location at a time. And so sometimes when we say the devil, are we talking about the big one? (laughs) Are we talking about one of his minions somewhere else? But they can't be here and there. That's God's ability. It doesn't seem to be theirs. Whew. Uh, Who is the devil? The devil is real. And it's way above our pay grade to fully understand it. But if we're going to understand the undercurrents of what's going on in this physical world and pretend like we're all enlightened and no kind of stuff, I think it's important for us to at least lean into some of the ancient imagery and understanding of these spiritual forces, uh, which is why Jesus came into the world. It says that Jesus' role was to come into the world to destroy the devil's work. And it was actually light work for Jesus. It wasn't hard for him. I I just finished a book last night uh, called Band of Brothers. Maybe you saw the HBO miniseries. It's about uh, the the 506th Airborne Division uh, in World War II, Easy Company, that's the name of them. And they were just like legendary warriors. And these are the guys, some of them were involved in jumping in on D-Day. You know, at Normandy. And they come in and they clear the lines and do all the stuff. Now, some people compare Jesus coming into the world to that, like, D-Day invasion of, of Europe. That when Jesus hits the scene, he comes in. And that battle at Normandy, like, there was a lot of battles. But it was, like, the tipping point of the war. And it's what begins to break down the internal structure of, like, Nazi Germany and all these other things. And so a lot of people look at the coming of Jesus, the thing that we celebrated at Christmas, the thing that we look at at Easter, the thing we talk about every week when we take communion, is this moment. It's like an invasion of of the devil's territory. And Jesus coming in saying, all right, let me deal with it. Now, there were still battles to fight, and there were still powers around that had to be dealt with. And that still seems to be true in the world today. But the war has already been decided. The scales have been tipped. The invasion has begun. I love in the book of Colossians that it says that Jesus came to rescue us from the dominion of darkness and bring us into the kingdom of the one he loves. And so there's a war. There's a battle going on. All that to make the big first idea. The devil is real. All right? That's where I am. That's what I believe. Jesus believed it. I present to you that maybe you should too. The second thing that we see uh, in our John 8 passage, and we, it's been a minute since we read it, so let's look at it again. Verse 44. Let's just read it. He says, You belong to your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desires. Ouch. He was a murderer from the beginning. The second big idea is this. The devil's goal is death and destruction. That's what he comes to do. That's what he comes to enforce upon this earth. He wants to hurt. He wants to... I think about what Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 10. He calls him the thief in this line. But he said, the thief has come only to steal and to kill and to destroy But I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. The devil's goal is death and destruction. So for Jesus, the devil is a villain. He's a criminal. He's an intruder. And his goal is to stamp out the goodness of God. Like, is there beauty in the world? I want to deface it. Is there joy in the world? I want to wreck that joy. Is there peace in the world? Let me cause chaos. Is there goodness in the world? Let me come in here and make it bad. 
which is why life feels like such a battle so often. Last week's big catchphrase was like, you know, the struggle is real. It's why our news cycle is full of insanity. It's why our friends and our families experience pain, brokenness. It's why in the quiet moments of your life, you wrestle with your purpose and the meaning of things and direction and sin. Because he wants to destroy the good things that God has made. Because he is and his, and, and his, his army of evil have been murderers from the start. And Jesus says, we, I'm going to lump us in with that group from John 8. He says, we want to carry out our father's desires. And we're like, uh-uh, I do not. I do not, but, but, but we do. We'll talk next week about the flesh. <laughs> and like how often it feels good to do the things that God wouldn't want us to do. Most of us aren't here trying to murder anybody or start wars. We're not. It actually ends up more like that game's two truths and a lie. It's, it's nuanced. It's small things. It's little things. It's, it begins that way, and it begins here, between our ears, in our minds, with the thoughts that we have that manifest into actions that we, that we do. And the devil has a primary mode of operation, which is our big third idea. The devil uses lies to reach his goal. So his goal is death and destruction. How does he get there? Lies. Not cannons, guns, bombs, dictators. I mean, there's things like kind of come out of it, but lies. Untruths. Listen again to Jesus. He says he was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there was no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks his native language. For he is a liar and the father of lies. The devil uses lies to keep us separated from the truth of God. And he's good at it. He makes bad things look good. This is what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, and no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. And I'll give you some ways that he does that if you didn't already know. Like if you needed some convincing. Like the number one on the list, I was like really sitting there thinking and I was thinking through scripture, I was thinking through life. I'm like, yeah, yeah, this is number one on the list. Do you know that sexual sin is most likely the most destructive thing on this planet? Like think about that. It gets a little bit mature, so hang with me if you don't have the maturity bone in you, okay? But like that, that, that area of a life, the most, it, it destroys how we view each other. It destroys relationships. It, it destroys trust. It can destroy families. Yet it is the thing that we most often will be flippant with and give a pass to. No big deal. And seriously, we look at intimacy before marriage or outside of marriage as commonplace. We encourage it. We tell teenagers, like, hey, it's fine, it's fine. I was doing it when you were, I was your age, it's fine. Christians, people living in, in the way of Jesus, just go, ah, it's not that big a deal. Just be careful. It's, that's a lie. And the reason that these things are dangerous is not because it's bad. God created sex. Like, it's like one of the greatest things God created. Amen, hallelujah. But also, he says, if you use this outside the boundaries of safety that I have set for you, it will destroy you. It will hurt you. And so I want this for you, but I want it in a safe context, the way that I created it to be used. And fewer and fewer people reserve that sacred act for marriage, it's not a big deal. And you view it on TV, and it's part of just basic everyday sitcoms and primetime TV and cheeseburger commercials 
See? Nuance. Little things. And the devil uses lies to achieve his goals. And that's just one example. It looks a lot like an angel of light. But it's seeking to devour. We do it with our politics. We do it with our money. We do it with our time. Like, how much time do we spend just flooding our minds with social media and streaming videos? And we're like, this is what I need to fill my mind with. We're a sponge. And that's not the goodness of God. Very often, is it? I mean, I don't know what you watch, but I know I'm guilty of this. We do it with our children. I think about the way children are just often allowed to just be disobedient and dishonorable to their parents and to other adults. And like God's like, this is one of the big ones. In the Ten Commandments, I'm going to put it in there. Don't kill people and make sure you raise your kids to respect adults. Like that's kind of like, it's up there. And we're like, well, they can't help it. You know, their little feelings are developing. And I'm not going to punish them. It might hurt them. I'm like, oh, you're, you're missing the boat. And these are the lies that we begin to believe and then we blame it on the public schools and the culture and all this stuff when really so much could be dealt with in our homes, in our hearts, in our heads. And it begins with just accepting simple lies, little things. Do what makes you happy. Morals are old-fashioned. Kids can't be held responsible for anything. They're kids. TV isn't that bad. It's not real. It's just TV. Some of our kids watch and participate in murder through video games and movies so much. And I don't know that we actually know yet how bad that is for their brains and their hearts. And it's an experiment. I played Mario Brothers growing up. We killed the ducks all the time. It's fine. Parents, like, look at the games. They're like photorealistic murder in war. I'm not standing here to be an old fogey. I'm just here saying, look, we were created in the image of God to function a certain way. And when you try to operate outside of that function, it can't be good for us. And the devil uses lies to meet his goals. And he does it by making us question God himself. I, I think about the first time it happened. He's been in it for a long time. Genesis chapter 3, we'll take a look at that. This is the story. This is the creation story. In chapter 3, we get like Adam and Eve, and there's the snake, and that's the whole clan. classic uh, story there. And let's look at Genesis chapter 3, starting at verse 1. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say you shouldn't eat the fruit from the garden? That's all he did. That's all he did. Did he actually say that? Okay, I'm not, maybe he did. I'm just saying. Did he actually say don't eat the fruit? The woman said to the serpent, Well, we made the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said you shall not eat the fruit of the tree that's in the middle of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. God's jealous of us is what the serpent is saying. He doesn't want us to have the secrets of the universe. That's what's going to happen if you eat. Knowing good and evil... A lot happens here, and I'm not teaching that passage today, and there's a lot of questions we might have about it. because it's. But I just want to point out the line. Did God actually say that? And it just put enough doubt in the woman's mind to be like, I, oh, actually, maybe he doesn't know what's best for me. 
while we're here, I want you to see the devil's strategy at work. He, he, used lies, he uses lies to reach his goals. But his strategy seems to be something like this. And this is something I'm borrowing from John Montgomery's book, Live No Lies. His strategy is what John calls isolation and lies. Isolation and lies. It's not just that he's such a good liar, though I guess he is. It's also that she's vulnerable. She's by herself. She's all by herself. Apparently she's hungry. I don't know. That's why you look at the bad websites you shouldn't look at when you're all by yourself and when you're tired and when you're grumpy and you had a long day at work. It's why you're mean to your spouse or your kids after you had a long day and you're off your game. You're isolated. So it's not just lies. It's isolation and lies. To get you singled out to a place where you're emotionally or spiritually, psychologically, physically isolated. You're on an island. This is why lions eat the antelopes that can't keep up with the herd because <laughs> they're by themselves it's, it's why wolves like get the sheep cornered they're by themselves and though you might not be physically by yourself sometimes we're emotionally and psychologically by ourselves. the devil will seldom attack you when you're on the mountaintop with your best friends and everything's going great he will seldom attack you he might be bold but that's a waste of his time Isolation and lies is what he does in the garden, and it's what he does with us. We're going to come back to that in just a minute. But like Eve, the devil can get to us by giving us wrong ideas, questioning our foundational truths, and and crushing what God wants for us in small ways. The Bible is full of warnings about deception. I found like 20 or 30. I'm not going to read them all, but I'm going to read a handful. Hang on, okay? And so just look at the screen. There's going to be a bunch. But check this out. This is Jesus talking, Matthew 24, verse 4. Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray. Deception is going to happen. See that no one leads you astray. This is in 1 John 3, 7. Dear children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, and he is righteous. Romans 1, 25. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. In Colossians 2, 4, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Or he says to Timothy, Timothy 3, 13, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. He's explaining a time when this is coming and it is here. In Jude chapter 1, verse 4, for certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago, have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality. And they deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign Lord. This was written 2,000 years ago. Like, this has been going on for a long time. And then I think this summarizes it, brings us full circle back to the garden, 2 Corinthians 11.3. Paul says, but I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And I had like 10 more. Just warning, 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 warning. And it's not warning about, you know, someone's going to call you to a seance and they're going to make you like kill a goat and draw a star on the floor and light candles and you're going to pray to zombie demons. No, 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 no. They're just going to start to fill your mind with deceptive thoughts. That's it. No hardcore crazy Satanism. Just lies. That's all. And over and over we're warned about it. It's moments like this where I 
I teach a lesson, and I feel like the end of the old G.I. Joe cartoons. Some of you remember this. So, like, there'd be the cartoon, and then, like, one of the cartoon characters would come up with, like, the big moral of the cartoon. It'd be like, and playing for matches is dangerous, kids. You could burn your house down. And, like, then you're like, oh, don't burn your house down. And then at the end, it would say, do you remember this? It would say, now you know. And knowing is half the battle. Right? And I'm just picturing some kid who's just about to play with matches. Who's just like, oh, gee, I just said I could burn my house down. I'm halfway towards not burning my house down. This is great. Knowing is half the battle. So that's the big thing. We've said it for a generation. Knowing is half the battle. Uh, a psychologist from Yale kind of took issue with that. And she did some studies on it. And she, she determined that knowing is not actually half the battle. I don't know what study she did, but I like what she said. She said, it turns out knowing is only about 10 to 20% of the battle. <laughs> you know what the other 80 to 90% of the battle is? Doing something different. <laughs> that's, that's what the rest of the battle is. You want to change something? You want to make something happen in the world? Knowing is a very important part of it. But then you have to actually get off uh, your butt and do something. Like that's kind of, that's what she, she's a psychologist and Yale is on her resume. So I, I trust that. We're going to look a little deeper at some strategies in the next two weeks because this whole idea of live no lies is like, sure, yeah, knowing is half the battle. Live no lies. But we're all going to go right out here and, and live in lies like to this afternoon. Okay, you're going to watch commercials today. And so that's, there you go. <laughs> it's going to be there. So how do we begin to train our minds and our bodies to, to do different, that like 80 to 90% do it part? Well, remember we said the devil's strategy is isolation and lies. So in his book, Live No Lies, John Mark Comer gives kind of a counterpoint to uh, isolation and lies. He calls it spirit and truth. Spirit and truth. Now, this is something he borrows from John chapter 4, he is, uh, Jesus is talking about worship in that setting. He's with the Samaritan woman. You might know that story. It's a great story. Jesus is not talking about spiritual warfare in this, and so I don't want to give the impression that we're like misusing scripture or taking it out of context. John, though, in his book, uses the very common phrase spirit and truth as a formula to fight against isolation and lies, okay? And, and so it works like that. Let's talk about spirit and truth because this is our strategy, okay? This is, what, this is what we're walking out of here with, so I hope it's worth the time. Spirit and truth. First, let's talk about spirit. Spirit is a deeply meaningful concept. In scripture, in life, it, what it means at its root, what is spirit, it's like the animating force behind stuff. Like in, the ancient, in Hebrew and Greek, like the Hebrew word that is used spirit is ruach, and it actually means just wind, air, spirit. It just means like if you see like a piece of paper blown across, they'd be like spirit. It's just the animating force behind something. But when we put it into context, like in creation, it says that God breathed his ruach into us. He gives us his, his air, his breath, but also his animating force power he gives us life so we get the idea that spirit there's something more behind it's like our soul maybe and it's the realm beyond the physical realm and that's that spirit once when jesus is encountering the devil who's trying to isolate him and lie to him this is luke chapter four i said we get back to that luke chapter four the devil and jesus are going at it jesus actually goes into the wilderness it says to be tempted by the devil that was part of his formation before he goes into his public ministry that was the choice that that he made and the devil approaches Jesus much like he approached Eve in the garden. Assuming that he's tired and he's hungry. He's been fasting for 40 days, by the way. Sleeping on the ground and all kinds of other things. And he starts to ask questions much like he asks Eve. He says, isn't it true? I mean, you're hungry. Couldn't you turn these stones into bread? And he asks questions like that. And it turns out, if you read the context of the story, the things that the devil is tempting him with are outside the character of Jesus. But there's also something that would be appealing to Jesus in the moment. It appears that Jesus is very alone. 
He's out in the wilderness. He's been fasting for 40 days. He's been in solitude and silence for 40 days. That's a very alone state. Doesn't it feel kind of alone? Like, I'm out here by myself. But he's not. Because in that 40 days, he's been communing with the Spirit of God. Nonstop. That's where he's drawing his strength from. That's like the point of a fast. So he's not alone. He appears alone. But he's in prayer. He's in fasting. He's in silence. He's in meditation. He's going over scripture that he knows in his mind. So that when Satan speaks to him and gives him these challenges, these lies, in seeming isolation, he's not isolated. He's full of the Spirit of God. And you know what he does? And he spits truth. You know what he does? He quotes scripture. He says, you know what? It also says that man cannot live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And time after time after time, as the devil comes to him with these lies, in seeming isolation, Jesus, full of the spirit, is not afraid. And he's prepared. And he's not alone. He's not the antelope or or the sheep being cornered by the, the lion or the wolf. He's in community with God. And so the strategy for overcoming isolation is to fill ourselves with the Spirit. And I want you to know this doesn't, happen, this doesn't have to happen in isolation. Like if you've never tried this, you might be like, where do I begin? That's why we do small groups. That's why we have church on Sunday. It's why we encourage. A lot of times this has happened. Maybe you haven't seen this, but like if someone's going through something, often they'll mention it to somebody, and that somebody will come around and be like, hey, someone is going through something. Can we stand around and pray with for them for a while after church. And we've come in here multiple times. And when we're at the Y, and we just stand around, we just, we just pray with them. Because they're feeling weak right now. And so they have a hard time communing with the Spirit of God right now. So let's help them. Let's begin to feel them. And also physically, they feel alone. So let's text them, and let's call them, and let's be at their house, and let's bring them food, right? And this is the isolation thing. is destroyed by Spirit, the Spirit of God, and also being in, in community with each other. 10% is knowing that there's going to be a problem. The other 90% is like, do something about it. So many things have taught us that, the, that what we focus our mind on affects how we think. So let me ask you this question. What do you focus your mind on? How often are you scrolling on some social media or some app? And that is what is filling your mind. You, you are a sponge. It's incap- you are incapable of staring at this thing for six hours a day and not letting it impact the way that you think. What is filling your mind? When's the last time that you just sat down and were like, I need to be still and quiet and try to pray and try to listen for the presence of God in my life? I'm going to tell you, this is, uh, this is difficult because this is something you have to practice. Jesus was really good at it. And this is why we do it in community. So that's, that spirit, um, we have to make it a priority. We, we have to choose not to be isolated. And choose to be in spirit. And then the other half is truth. Spirit and truth. That's our strategy. Spirit and truth. And so the idea of truth is this. I think the greatest source of truth that we can find from God is his word. Scripture. You can get it from people. John Mark Comer's written some books. He's, a lot of it's good. God, truth. But like directly from the Bibles that we have. And that takes time. A lot of you went to college and are still paying off your loans. Um, College took time, didn't it? You had to sit in class three hours a week. You had to take tests. You had to sit with professors. You had to go talk to professionals. You did internships. Don't expect to fight the devil with like, I went to church and the dude, he talked for like, he talked a long time, man. He talked for like too long, but I should be good. No, this is like private study. This is like get with your friends. This is like sit with your family. 
This is like, guys, I know the new Marvel series came out on Disney+, Plus, but have we read our Bibles together yet in a long time? Let's do that, too. We begin to fill ourselves with truth so that we can reach in that, that grab bag of tools and say, I have that. When I feel attacked, when I feel pressured, when I feel uncertain, I have found this truth. And now I can't find it. Okay, fine. Find another friend, a brother or sister who's like trying to and say, listen, I'm struggling with this idea. Can you help me find some truth here? This isn't rocket science, but it's also not easy. The strategy is spirit and truth. I want to say one last thing about spirit and truth. Um, God's spirit is most available to those who submit to him. I believe he's everywhere. I don't think there's really a, such a place. We say like secular. This is a secular place. I don't think there's a place where it's like God is like, I can't go there. I'm not there. He's there. He's all over. But his closest interaction with us is through his Holy Spirit. And we're taught in scripture. I mean, the, the clearest place. I've read it, so I'd love for you to find me a, a more clear verse to this. But in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, we see people asking like, what do we do? And the apostle Peter says, well, you should repent and be baptized. And in this whole moment and time and mental state it says you will receive forgiveness of your sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit like that's the surest place that I know of in scripture where you can find where you can get the Holy Spirit from God in your life and there this has been a question that's divided the church one question you might be like why are there so many denominations part of it is like when does the spirit come <laughs> that's, that's a big point but here's the thing don't argue with that or them look at scripture and this is one very short place. Can you get the Holy Spirit, like, outside of baptism? Uh, you know what? I don't really feel any reason to teach on that. Because I don't see the scripture that tells me that. But I do see the one that says, one short place to come into contact with the blood of Jesus and the Holy Spirit is in our baptism. Is it the water? No. First Peter 3, 3 says that no, it's not the water that washes dirt from our bodies. It's the pledge of a clean conscience towards God. This is deep. This is spiritual stuff. Well, what I'm saying is, if we want to have spirit and truth, we have to come into contact with spirit. And if you feel like, I don't know if I have the Spirit of God in my life, it might be because you haven't fully surrendered and submitted in obedience to making Him our Savior. And so maybe one thing that you can carry through with is baptism, which is a beautiful picture of like laying your physical body in a grave and saying, I'm dead, <laughs> and then rising to walk in newness of life. And it's the daily thing. It's a constant refresh. Spirit and truth. Okay, where does that leave us? I want to leave us with a challenge today. Our challenge, I'm calling this the Spirit and Truth Challenge, and I saw it was up on the screen earlier. Let's put it up again. This, this might take some time to jot down or take a picture of it. It's a lot. It's four questions, and this is your homework, okay? Like, if you want to care about this, these are four things you can do this week. Um, and I'll just ask the questions, and you can chew on them a little bit. The first question is this. What are the things you focus on that influence how you think? I have some friends that I'm like, you are watching a lot of Fox News right now, and I can hear it coming out of your mouth. And I'm not, this is not me making a political statement, because I could say something about a, a more, uh, more liberal station or whatever. But the thing is, is like, you don't have any original thoughts. <laughs> you are just parroting back things you heard on the radio, and things you heard from your angry uncle, and the things you heard from your neighbor. And so like, maybe that's where you get your, your influence of where you think. It, it, a lot of us, it's music. A lot of us, it's social media. I scroll through my feed, it's like, well, everyone's saying this. Well, not everyone, just the people that you follow. What is, who is influencing your thought? That's just, that is just an awareness thing. Now you know. And knowing is 10% of the battle. I want to encourage you this week to like, write that down. Like, where are my influences for how I think? I don't think there are any wrong answers here. It's just an awareness thing. Second question. How can you intentionally turn down those voices so that you can focus on what the Spirit of God is saying in your life? 
Maybe I'll use the volume knob two ways. Turn down those voices and turn up the voice of God in our life. That's a question for you to wrestle with. How can you intentionally do that? Here's the thing that I've been trying to do is just to be still and quiet. And it's amazing what God can do in us when we will just turn it off. And it is uncomfortable. What am I supposed to think about? Oh, those are all my scary thoughts. I don't want to have those thoughts right in it. But if God's presence is the power that it is, that I believe it is, he will eventually knock through the silence and help us hear. And you can talk to him. Uh, I want to give you an advice. Don't start out by making ultimatums to God. Sometimes like, well, God, if you're there, show up. You're going to show up. This is the first time we talked in 30 years, and you want me to just like, you're not going to be a prophet? Uh, no, no. Um, those guys work really hard at being righteous. I just want you to be quiet. And so maybe that's where you need to start. I'm, I can't tell you what to do, but I'm suggesting that you take some time to be quiet. Maybe that's the thing. But how can you intentionally turn down those voices so you can turn up the spirit of God saving you? Just listen. You don't have to write it down. You can. It might not make sense. It might not be clear at first. It takes practice. But the war is real, so let's have a strategy. Number three. So this is about truth. The first half is about spirit. The second half is about truth. Where do you go to find truth? Me? I Google it. I'm just going to be honest with you. So that's not, that's not a bad method. It's a really effective method. But like when it comes to how I think about humanity, morality, just the big things, the big, like where, who formed those ideas? Where did it come from? It probably started when you were 12 years old or something or younger, right? It's in there. And this is not a damnation of where any of us came from. It's just an awareness, just like the first question. Who informed what I think? <laughs> Why do I think this is true and this is not true? That's just the question. And then the fourth question. What is your plan to getting into God's word more regularly? If you can trust me enough to say that perhaps the greatest source of truth we could get is by reading God's word, then maybe we can identify where our truth has come from, but then step it back and go, okay, let's get into God's word. Let's see what does the Bible say about things. <laughs> That's where, again, I want to encourage you to Sign up for one of these Bible studies that we're doing throughout the week. Come early on a Sunday. They meet, is it 9 o'clock in here? Come here at 9. Like, if you're already off on Sunday, come at 9. One of our elders, James, and some others lead us Bible study. And just, what are y'all studying right now? Uh, Hebrews. Hebrews. That's a great book. Hebrews tells us a lot about the Old Testament and the New Testament and how it works together. Uh, yeah, you show up at 9. That's a great place to start. Um, and you can make some friends through there. Four questions. Our strategy is going to have to be like, like custom made for each person. Because we all have our own brokenness and our own baggage and our own questions. And, but we also get to do it in community. So at the heart of who we are, let's be a people that live no lies. Let's be a people that call out lies in love. Scripture says we should teach truth in love. We're not going to be beating people over the head with the Bible, kicking them in the street because they disagree with you. That's stupid. But if we take the time to build relationships, care enough to pray for each other, and look for the answers together. Man, generations of believers have really been able to overcome the battle. Jesus tells us, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Let's pray.